Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Thank you all for making it. We're going to be the number one media conglomerate in the world. The key here is act like a happy family. We're the Osbournes, and I'm Daddy fucking Warbucks, okay? I always wanted one of you kids to take over. People would do well to remember there's going to be a new sheriff in town. Here's to us. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching Succession, the unofficial podcast about the HBO series Succession. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Uh, each week on this show, we like to break down the latest episode of Succession, talk about where we think our players in the game are currently on top or on bottom of the pile uh, that is the struggle for the Roys. Uh, this week we were talking about episode, uh, season two, episode eight, Dundee directed by Kevin Bray and written by Mary Laws. And um, we've got some great emails to read. We've got a special guest this week, which is Dame Harriet Walter, a, a, a still watching first. We have a Dame on the podcast. Oh, <laughs> Look at us. So she plays, she plays Lady Caroline, the, uh, the matriarch of, well, not, I don't know. It's hard to say who the matriarch of this family is, but she's the mother of at least three Roy children. So, um, she has that great honor. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so she was, she was, she'll be talking largely about last week's episode, episode seven, which is the one that she was in. Sadly, we pretty much only get one Harriet Walter episode, uh, per season, but she has some great stuff to say. So stick around for that. Um, I did want to, you know, note really quickly because Richard and I are in the awards season, uh, thick of it all with our little gold men podcast that of course, succession won best writing Emmy, uh, this past Sunday at the Emmys. Uh, how do you feel about that, Richard? I think it's great. I mean, it's kind of the Emmy we thought they were going to win, you know, the, because yeah. the show is just so beautifully written. Um, but it was a nice little stamp, you know, I think it was a weird Emmys year, for a variety of reasons, and it was just in the drama category, at least it just felt like, okay, we gotta, you know, get the Game of Thrones out of the way. So I don't know. I'm hoping that this second season of the show is so good that, um, it will get its Emmy due, um, next year. Although there is a certain mark of distinction of being one of those shows that only 
is barely recognized by the Emmys, like The Wire or something, you know? So maybe Succession will Right, or The that. Americans, like, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm hoping we see some acting uh, nominations next year. Um, like Brian Cox, at least. I mean, come on. Yeah. Jeremy Strong, um, Sarah Snook. I got, I got, I got my, my the ideas whole cast. for who I'd like to see in there. Yeah, every, everyone. Every guest star. <laughs> but one of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite things about the Emmys is uh, multiple people I know who went just like really independent of each other all reported back to me their cousin Greg sightings, Nicholas Braun, who plays cousin Greg. Uh, maybe because he's so tall and you can just like see him, uh, in any given crowd. But, you know, our reporters on the ground were sending us some great cousin Greg anecdotes. A friend of mine sent me a photo that her husband took with cousin Greg, uh, someone who actually works on Game of Thrones at the top level, texted me that they got a photo with Cousin Greg. So, you know, succession's on the wind. Here it comes. Well, I, my, my tweet from the HBO party, which I was at, was, yes. you always know where Nicholas Braun is at a party, because I would just look, and there would just be him sta- towering above everyone else in this <laughs> at this very crowded party, and he was just like this little, like, lighthouse. <laughs> oh, so great. Yeah. Um, all right, so we're going to hit a couple emails. First, this one from Jesse Pascal, who says, um, hello, something I've noticed on the show is that in the opening credits, the first season focused on the middle male child. The second season opener seems like it focused more on the female child. I think Joanna might be onto something in her theory that each season is a look at how each child will be taken down. So um, maybe if I'm bored, I'll do a shot by shot. I noticed that the opening credits were slightly different, and it mm-hmm. did seem to me that there was a little more shiv this year and a little more Kendall last year. Um, and I don't know if that's, you know, a, an indication that I'm correct in my theory that each season will focus on a different Roy child. But, um, I, I like people telling me they think I'm right. So thank you very much, Jesse. Uh, mm-hmm. what do you think of that, Richard? Uh, I think it's interesting. And I think that it's always, um, sort of fun speculating about the, the, the kind of master plan, the grand design that, um, a show has for itself, you know, because, uh, you know, I think that in, in the old days with a network show where they had to do 22 episodes a year and the, the goal was to run for, you know, 10 seasons, I think it maybe was a bit more just like, yeah, we'll figure it out on the day, you know, but like with these right. kind of more like couturier cable shows or streaming shows or whatever, I think that, that a, a creator can really go in being like, okay, I'm going to do five seasons you know, each or four seasons, whatever, um, they can really kind of build their, their narrative that way. And, um, I like that idea that, that, you know, next season will be Romans or Connors or, you know, whatever. I just think that's a kind of a, a fun way to structure it. It's funny. Cause I was thinking, I was like, okay, what if it's five seasons? Cause five seasons can be the perfect length, I think for a show. So what mm-hmm. if we're lucky enough to get five seasons of succession before Jesse Armstrong gets bored and wants to do something else? Um, and what if each season it does focus on a royal child? And what if I had this crazy idea watching this week's episode? What if one, two, three, four, uh, you know, uh, taken down a peg and mm-hmm. then season five is the cousin Greg season and then Greg gets the whole company. <laughs> Very brand <laughs> winning the Game of Thrones kind of thing. I was thinking because like we find on this episode and we'll get into a little bit more, but like the, the value that Greg has for Logan is it's a fuck you to his brother, right? I've taken mm-hmm. your grandchild and making him sort of mine. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that's, uh, you know, that would be the ultimate, revenge on uh that logan could have on his on his brother you and is like i've i've taken your family member and what, made what him, was it fun know. uncle or grandpa grump yeah 
<laughs> the way the way that Brian Cox delivered like <laughs> Uncle Fun. Was Uncle so Fun good. or Grandpa Grump. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah. Grandpa Grumps. All right. Uh we got this uh quick email from Johnny who says, um Another reason to love the show, since he was insulted for his boxy, poorly tailored stylings a few episodes back, I think Tom's suit game has improved. Less brown, more blue, more modern fits. Seems like something the show would do. Am I wrong? I remember noticing particularly in that like, um, evening or, or, you know, late afternoon cocktail hour scene where Tom is sent to like sort of flirt with Rhea by Shiv. I noticed particularly Matthew McFadden's uh, suit in that moment. It was very beautiful blue suit. Um, I think that's absolutely something this show would do and something Tom would do, would mm-hmm. take that insult and then just, you know, dive head first and pay someone yeah. to, to, to dress him basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's like uh, hired a stylist and now he looks better. Meanwhile, I mean, <laughs> we'll get to everything Kendall in this episode, but I was like, what is Kendall wearing when you see him in that like brown velvet suit with the bow tie? You're like, what is happening? What is this striped shirt underneath? Like what is happening here? And then yeah, um, I'm not sure it's, it makes sense even after the reveal of the baseball jersey, but it's a, uh, it's a, definitely a look that he's going for there. Um, all right. And then this last, uh, this last email is also from Jesse who writes in and says, hello, just wanted to say that I love your podcast. I wanted to comment on the recent episode. Uh, after getting to know Logan Roy thus far, I've been waiting for someone to play the hand, uh, to play a hand the way Rhea has. Logan Roy isn't looking for a successor. He's looking for a reincarnated version of himself. He wants someone who thinks like him to take over and his children have too much of an ego to submit, which is probably why he's beating figuratively, except in Roman's case, his children into submission. So it was interesting to see Rhea slyly take down Shiv in such an observant and shrewd way. The Roy children think they know people, but they are blinded by their own greed and they are unable to really observe. Rhea clearly has a way of knowing people well and maneuvering her way into a better position. Um, so I'm curious to see how this plays out. So I, I Jesse or just wrote this in response to episode seven, but I think after watching episode eight, you can see Shiv really, uh, I think going, going properly Logan in this episode, mm-hmm. uh, with all of her calculations. This is, this is a, I mean, if I had to characterize this episode, I would say, you know, Shiv versus Rhea and the battle of like the, the sneaky maneuvering. And, you know, for, for a time, you think Rhea's gonna, Rhea's doing it. She's really doing it. She's working her magic on all the young men of the Roy family. It's working. Shiv loses her allies. And then at the last minute, like Shiv gets a, a triumph that Rhea doesn't even know that she's been, you know, shivved yet. So, um, uh, I don't know. I, it's it's fascinating. Like, who do you see as the, uh, you know, the reincarnation of of Logan Roy among our our players in this game here? Hmm. I mean, almost given the context of this episode, where we're going, you know, sort of back into Logan's past, which we don't really get much details about, but we we learned some things. Like, isn't it, Greg? <sighs> This kind of like <laughs> half formed, but like perfectly willing to do devious things, but like not coming from it to it from a place of sort of known deviousness, I guess. Like the problem with Logan's children is that they're Logan's children, you know, Logan was not yeah. his own son. So I feel like, yeah. I don't know, I, I feel like it needs to be someone who is a little bit less um compromised already. So of the people we know, isn't that correct? 
Yeah, I mean, like, so with, um, it's not as if Greg comes from nowhere, but when we meet him, he's at the bottom of the, you know, he has, like, no money. Like, in the first few episodes of season one, he has literally, like, not enough money to pay a taxi or whatever. That's where Greg starts. And it's not exactly like... Uh, going to the bathroom outside or, or, uh, not as the case may be in Logan's made up backstory. But, um, but, you know, he, yeah, he comes from a family with money, but he starts sort of on, on, uh, at zero when the show starts. And so we're watching him climb and climb rapidly. And the other climber in the show is Tom, right? Like his parents seem, you know, they're well off. He's, he's from, I think, what, Minnesota? And they, I know, paid for the wine at the wedding. But, you know, so he's not from nothing, but he's another person sort of climbing his way up. Whereas, yeah, um, Shiv and Roman and Kendall all started life, uh, and Connor all started life on third base or home, you know, if that's, I think that's the expression. I don't do sports metaphors. I don't know why I tried. Um, but yeah, so. So now, you know, speaking of Tom and Greg, now is usually when we, uh, rank all of our players sort of from the, the top to the bottom because we love ending with whoever's on the bottom. Um, but this week we've got a, a slight exception. We're putting Tom and Greg on the bench because even though they're in this episode, Tom is like trying to flirt with Rhea a bit on Chip's behalf. Greg is infested with sand mites. Um, he's being sort of torn between his grandpa's wealth and, and Uncle Fun. Um, they're, they're both pawns very much so in this episode. So they're not really players. So we're benching Tom and Greg this week is what we've decided to do. Yeah. I mean, I think that it doesn't, yeah, they're not out of the game exactly, but this episode was much more about the immediate family sort of scrambling. And inevitably when that becomes the case, like Tom and Greg are some of the first people who just become sort of their autonomy is completely shut off and they're just kind of, you know, used by the other people. Right. So, um, so on the bench this week, Tom and Greg, and we really do hope that Greg's, uh, sand mite situation gets better. I like rewatching this episode a second time, knowing that that's sort of the running joke. Um, you can see him sort of just scratching and itching from the very beginning of the episode. And it's pretty, it's pretty great, uh, background <laughs> comedy from Nicholas Braun. So, yeah. so moving off the bench to people who I think were really were in play, uh, this episode. Um, I think that, Joanna, we, we both pretty quickly agreed that the number one player this episode was Marsha, who has been a bit of a sideline character in most episodes of this show, but here really uh, asserts herself in a way that I feel like she's the one of the only people who can actually get under Logan's skin, which is a real kind of power. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, this whole episode, Shiv is trying to, uh, you know rally the troops to her side and say like, okay, let's all, let's all form an alliance against Rhea. And she tries to get Marsha on her side and Marsha seems really uninterested. Um, but kind of interested at the same time. There's a few things like when she's talking to Marsha on the plane and she's so transparently trying to get Marsha on her side and Marsha says something like, you know, if she wants to throw Logan a surprise party, who am I to ruin that? When I feel like she knows perfectly well that Logan would hate a surprise party. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then she's got that tremendous STD exchange with Rhea, which is, you know, her own, like trying to put Rhea in her place a bit, like you're just his sexual partner. But it's when Logan crosses the line and makes this big business decision without ever discussing it with her and puts Rhea in this position, this business position. That's when Marsha's like, no, I've had it. I'm done. And I think that's, um, it was a really interesting moment. 
Yeah, I mean, I I have to say this wasn't my favorite episode of the show because I, I just feel like it, everything felt a bit more telegraphed than it normally is. Like it felt like people were kind of speaking their motivation in a way or or kind of arriving at some epiphany point. And, and, and Marsha kind of telling him off at the end felt like that a little bit. But I guess maybe the, the more nuanced in, interpretation of all of this, which is one I'm very willing to afford the show, uh, is that something about the the kind of pro- progression of this trip to Dundee and the way that Rhea featured in it. And I think in a way that maybe Marsha didn't actually see her as a threat until she saw that Shiv did. I don't know. Like, I, I, I guess I can, I can, I can appreciate that Marsha's feelings toward the matter could have evolved over the course of this episode. Because from, from my initial reading, I was like, that was kind of sudden and out of nowhere. But, you know, now that I think about it, it's like, no, there was actual, there was a build to it. Right. And I think, you know, she gets, she gets some good, I don't know if this is last lines for Marsha. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it is, you know, talk, calling the plaque his like shiny little gravestone and all sorts. I mean, like <laughs> when Marsha wants to get the knives out, she gets the knives out. So, um, you know, uh, and Logan's been married. This is his third wife. We think at least, at least, yeah. um, we get a little bit more information on perhaps his first knife, uh, wife, uh, Connor's mom that she, uh, maybe went to a mental institution at one point. So that's, I think, information we didn't have, mm-hmm. um, before. We still haven't, like, you know, she's the Tammy one. We still haven't met her. We don't know who she is, uh, if she's still with us. But, um, uh, you know, it, given the rate in his life that, that Logan has gone through wives, like, it might make sense for Marsha, you know, for this to really be it. And maybe Logan, we meet another, maybe it's Rhea, maybe it's someone else, but we meet another wife for Logan before the series is over. I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. So, yeah. uh, so that is Shiv. Uh, uh, that's Marsha on top, which brings us to Shiv number two, uh, Shiv trying desperately to th- this Shiv is trying to do the thing that I every single week want the Roy kids to do, which is like work together. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you know, Harriet Walter in our interview this week says something, said something really, um, interesting, I think, where she said, uh, nobody on this show is honest unless they feel safe and nobody ever feels safe, you know? And it's like, that's true. Like what's, what's yeah. standing in the way of them, you know, being honest with each other, connecting with each other in a way where they could unite against their dad is that they just don't ever feel safe with each other, with anyone. And so you just have this constant like armor up glibness, sharp, uh, you know, barbs and stuff like that. Uh, but so Shiv's like, okay, for the, you know, let's, let's put the guns down. Let's try to get together on this. And her loser brothers let her, let her down, um, are easily swayed by some honeyed nonsense from Rhea and Shiv has to do it all herself. And she does, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that she is honest in this episode in a way that I don't, I mean, she, she, she nakedly expresses to Tom when they're walking into the party in that fabulous dress, by the way. Um, yes. That, she, that, she, that this, she, she was like, I was made an offer and I'm going to collect on it. You know, she, she, it's the most like vocally, like f- straightforward. I think we've heard her being about wanting the job. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I like that she just kind of was playing with it. Um, but yeah, I just also love a, any scene on this show where a character, you, you see them realizing the angle, you know, like you see them making the plan. 
uh, and, and, you know, the whole little powwow, I forget what Jerry calls it, but, uh, where they're like, okay, this whole cruise thing is about to, you know, and then her looking over at Rhea and like, it was just like, it was just so, uh, kind of satisfying to, to watch Shiv realize that like, oh my God, she's not actually down for the count. She has one more round left in her, you know? Uh, yeah. and it's yeah. going to be a good round. <laughs> Yeah, and it's a, it's a dialogue-less, uh, moment where you just hear them talking. So, uh, Jerry called it the meeting of the newly formed what the fuck are we going to do committee. And, um, I was, I was struck thinking, like, thinking of the caliber of talent, you know, they've got these great sort of side players. I don't think of Jerry as a side player, but like someone like Carolina or Sid is there, or you've got Hugo, the Fisher Stevens character, you know, you've got all these like great, uh, you know, Frank is there and they're like counselors, or I think of them, like if we're thinking of uh, like a Shakespeare play, like a meeting of the Lords, you know what I mean? It's just sort of like the various Lords, like Northumberland and like whatever are gathered to like discuss, you know, a, a plot. And, um, and yeah, when they, when they come together, they say quite plainly that, you know, there's this uh, former employee of the company, um, Wiesel, who they're calling the weasel, um, who looks poised to blow the whistle on a lot of the crew stuff and a lot of the Mo stuff. Um, and no amount of money that they throw at him or threats that they throw at him is working, which means he has an independent financial backer and we'll get to who we think that is in short order. And so Shiv and something that they say is whoever is the new CEO, no matter what, whoever's the new face is fucked. And so Shiv's like, okay, well, guess what? It's not smart for me to be the new CEO right now. We need to put Rhea in that position. She has to take the brunt of whatever this scandal is, and then I can slip in behind her. And she scores points with her dad for being like, go with your gut. You know, I'm not nakedly striving for this because she saw how well nakedly striving went over with her dad. And so she's like, okay, uh, I'll just tell him to go ahead and go for Rhea and go with his gut. And I trust you and all this sort of stuff. This like, oh, this amazing Sarah Snook performance. Just yeah. like look on her face as she's looking up at him and stuff like that and saying like, go for it, dad, you got this. Um, and, and it's interesting. It, yeah. Sorry. It's interesting watching, you know, how, and this has been a recurring little motif on the show is how he sometimes softens to his children and is yeah. kind to them. And, and I guess his version of loving, but it's only when they've sort of approached him tail between their legs, licking wounds, when he just doesn't, he does, you know, he sees them as kind of beaten down to where they need to be. You know, it's just, it's similar with, he did the same thing with Kendall where like he got him into such a place of just absolute dejection. And then he's like, yeah, like come sit at the desk with me, you know, in my office or like, you know, then it's yeah. okay. It's okay to be loving. But with the minute they sort of step out of, out of line or, or, or act presumptuous or, uh, you know, uh, uh deserving of something, you know, uh, then forget it. Um, the, the shot that I really loved that conveys this is Logan's talking to Shiv a little earlier. He's like, did I get this wrong? Did I mess it up with Rhea? You know, Shiv's, Shiv's plan to expose certain weaknesses. Like Shiv really does understand Logan, right? She mm-hmm. knows that he would be mad to find out that Rhea is not really a drinker. Uh, she knew the Rose thing would really, uh, throw him the mention of, of his sister, which we don't know quite what happens, but we know that Logan seems to blame himself for his younger sister's death. And, um, you know, that he would hate a surprise party and all this sort of stuff. She knows the stuff about him. And he, like, 
he, the, the shot is of him sort of touching, like clasping her hands and the camera just sort of lingers on that. And there are these moments when Logan can soften or put the charm offensive on. Cause he does it to Greg too. He gives Greg the charm offensive in the bathroom because he wants to like, he doesn't want to let Greg quit because it is messing with his brother. And so when you see him turn on that Logan Roy charm, it's, um, it's a fun thing to watch because Brian Cox has, you know, you know, huge stores of charisma. So when he decides to turn on that light, it shines pretty brightly. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. So that is, that is Shiv doing, doing her best, making it through. Um, th- which brings us to Logan's brother, Ewan Roy played by James Cromwell. I think we also just get one Ewan, uh, episode per year. Is that right? It, that, I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there was um, only one last season. I think it was just Thanksgiving last season, but I could be wrong. But, um, you know, you and as it turns out is like quite the environmentalist, uh, says Logan is worse than Hitler for, I don't know, enabling climate change deniers. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we get the, uh, notion that he is the one backing this whistleblower financially. Is that your read on the situation as well? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause it kind of cuts to him when this whole thing is being revealed and then he, he kind of, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like he, he does everything but just come out and say it. Right. Um, and I don't know. It's interesting, I guess, narratively that, I don't know, that we would find out that this character who we were aware of, but haven't really heard much from, you know, since last season is quietly been active this whole time. Um, I think I wanted maybe a little bit more build to that in a way, but at the same time, was there build in finding out that Peter Thiel was funding Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against Cocker? Like, no, that kind of was just like uh, bolt out of the blue, like, oh, this has been happening this whole time. So, um, and not to equate these two situations, but, um, but yeah, so I, I don't know, like, I, I, I like that, um, that the call is coming from inside the family, you know, that makes it that yeah. much more sort of of a betrayal and that much more sinister because that is an absolute, takedown of principle and not of finance whatsoever. And that is a much more of a threat to this whole enterprise than, you know, someone trying to do a hostile takeover. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, you know, Sid is, and and that's more, I mean, not to go back to this well, but that's more Shakespearean, right? (laughs) That it's the brother. Um, so, and the Scottish brother at that. So, uh, yeah. And it's interesting what we learn about, um, Logan and Ewan's childhood, how old they were when, uh, they lost other mother, which was five and four, that they had this sister that they lost that, um, Logan blames himself for this, like, interesting little bird watching bandstand memory, you know, like it's, it's a, you know, I hear you in terms of like motivations being telegraphed, but there's this, uh, let's bring Logan back to his, uh, origins premise of this episode. I, I really quite like a lot. So, um, without getting all the information and, and what I really like is that it starts by it's the episode starts or, well, early in the episode, Connor says something like, tell us, tell us a story from your childhood, dad. And he's like, fuck you, Rosebud was a, was a dollar bill, whatever got me out. And Connor's like, great story, dad. But you know, the, the acknowledgement that like, okay, we're doing a little bit of a Citizen Kane thing here, but if we call it out, at least, you know, we know what we're doing. The sister, the sister's name is Rose. Like it's, you know, it's at least aware, self-aware, you know. 
All right. Who is next on our, on our list of players, Richard? So the next person on our list, um, I guess it's kind of the middle because she is Rhea because she both wins and loses. She wins in the present tense and I think loses in the future. Um, which puts her at an interesting spot. Um, what I like what they've done with this character is when she first comes into the scene, she seems like a real smoothie, like real, you know, has every angle considered, no, you know, knows every beat that's going to be played. And yet, and we've gradually just seen like, no, she's actually just as sort of, uh, on the wind as anyone else really. Um, you know, even the people who project that kind of air of all, you know, uh, just su- supreme co- competence and, and omnipotence, like, that, or they're just, they're not, they're all sort of still in this kind of chaotic orbit around Logan. Yeah, absolutely. But also that Rhea, I mean, we don't see her work, Connor. We see her work, Kendall, to basically saying, like, it could still be you, right? Mm-hmm. That's what she tells Kendall. Yeah. The Roman one is my, is I think the most interesting because I think she figures out that Roman, like, has this edible thing. She calls herself, when she calls herself a butterfly in the ointment and then she says, I wriggle, mm-hmm. I was like, girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it works. Like it, it definitely works on him. So I think she, you know, she, she gets the read of these three men and knows what to say to them to flip them really quickly. So that, you know, at least we have to give her credit for. Yeah. And you know what? Who knows? Maybe she's, you know, more up on the situation with the cruise thing than we know. And maybe she has a, a, a you know, a sort of strategy for that. But, um, I, I, I think it was interesting watching her absorb certain, you know, faux pas this, this episode, you know, especially with the toast, uh, where she mentions the sister because Kendall kind of played her that way. Um, but I don't know. I think that, uh, I, I, I'm choosing to believe that she's a bit more calculating even than we've seen. And that like, she has an awareness of what the kids are doing behind her back and that, you know, she has a, a secret card up her sleeve or something. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. There's, there's cards up every sleeve, even though she's wearing a beautiful sleeveless gown in this episode. Yeah. Um, Holly Hunter looks amazing, obviously, but like, um, yeah, there's, there's, I wouldn't count Rhea out by any means. It's just like, from what we know from the episode, Rhea doesn't know about this bomb and Shiv has put her directly in the path of it. Uh, whether or not Rhea dodges out of the way in time, we'll see, but that is, that is where the positioning stands right now. So, but in the, in the short term, she got what she wanted, which is she gets to be CEO, mm-hmm. waste our work quote, which is a poison pill, but that is one that she has been after. So there you go. Um, all right. So that brings us, um, down to Logan, who's sort of like smack dab in the middle, just cause he's like, he's not really in control in this episode other than sort of manipulating Greg a bit. But he, you know, he, you know, he miscalculates how he's playing his hand with Marsha. Um, he lets Shiv sort of, uh, talk him into something that, uh, may ultimately be good for him. We don't know, but it's not, it's her interest, not his interest that's being forwarded here. Um, and as you say, you know, he's being celebrated. And so it's all in honor of him, but it's not really as much about him um, as he would always like it to be, you know? Well, I think that, you know, and, you know, this is kind of the joke that any older actor who wins like a Lifetime Achievement Award kind of says, is this kind of thing is one step away from a eulogy. It's one step away from a funeral, you know? Uh, and it, 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 it venerates him and his legacy, but it also, you know, puts 
positions it a bit in the past, you know, and, and, and he, he kind of speaks on, on, on that where he's, you know, there's the, the future is kind of, you know, where, where everything, where all the possibility is obviously. And he's like, and the problem with the past is there's so much of it. Um, and, he said, he says something like none of it's true or something like, but, but like, but he's kind of being pushed into that. Um, and so while it might seem that because everyone in this episode is, you know, kissing his ring, that he would be number one on the pole in pole, you know, he'd be in pole position, but like, no, because they're, they're kissing his ring just to push him off onto the ice flow, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's absolutely true. This is the, the, you know, there's jokes about this being his memorial, his funeral, you know, 50 years, um, at Waystar Royquo. Um, he does get a journalism school. Uh, the Dundee University, I think, gets a journalism school, the Logan Roy School of Journalism, which is fantastic. Um, and Kendall has that great line, something like, uh, 10 ways you're never going to get paid or something like that. Like, which, uh, as always with this show, like really cuts kind of deep, uh, for people in our industry. So, uh, congratulations, succession, you strike again. And there's also the, is it, is it Ewan who has the line about the uh, Jack Ripper school for female sexual health or something like that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty great. Uh, so yeah, so that, I mean, is there anything else you want to say about Logan? I guess the thing, well, this brings us, let's, let's talk about Logan bridging to Kendall because I think the most powerful thing that Logan does in this episode, um, is in a, in a, in a 30 second reaction, basically put Kendall off another woman that he was like really interested in. Um, and yeah. that, you know, speaks more to Kendall's weaknesses than it does Logan's strengths, but that Logan, this is this, you know, I think the fact that, that Kendall was fascinated with this young actress, Jennifer, um, when we sort of were like, I mean, at least I was like all above the Naomi train, but like, I feel like Logan is systematically, um, putting Kendall off, you know, these women that he's interested in. Maybe it's not this thought out, but part of it is we talked about this last week. Like, if Kendall is interested in Jennifer or Naomi or whoever it might be, like, that's a source of joy or independence or something that Logan is not letting Kendall have, you know? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, and so all it took for him was like a tepid reaction for Kendall to send, uh, Jennifer packing back to New York. Well, yeah. I mean, Logan certainly does not like any of his kids to be carried away with good feeling you know like if they're gonna pick a partner it has to be a strategic one and they can't be giddy about it they can't be weak about it they have to be you know sort of unyielding and and to see kendall earnestly or what his version of earnestness is be like i met this great actress and we're we're like in having this whirlwind thing isn't that exciting and that is not a temperament that logan tolerates in his children or really anyone there's that scene where Connor comes to his room to try to get him to send Jennifer back to New York. And Jeremy Strong plays Kendall as like uh, smiling in a way we've never seen him smile on the Mm -hmm. show, just genuinely enjoying himself. And you're like, wow, this never happens for this guy. Uh, not even when he's like, you know, cause it's different from his, like I'm super high or or Mm -hmm. drunk or whatever it is. It's a different kind of joy. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's delightful and enjoyable. And of course it's short lived. Like, of course it is. So, 
Um, but obviously we cannot talk about Kendall Roy without talking about Jeremy Strong, the actor who plays Kendall Roy's incredible, uh, rap performance, uh, that we got to witness, that we were lucky enough to witness. Well, I watched this screener a couple weeks ago and I like begged HBO to give me like the behind the scenes of this rap. They would not, but like, I'm hoping someone got that story or there's a making of YouTube or something like, I want to know the whole story behind this, uh, the formation of this rap. What did, how did it strike you, Richard? Well, I'm going to have to take your word for it because I had to mute the whole thing. I could not, could not watch it. I, it, was it was too cringy. So, so cringy. I, I was like, oh, I literally said Joanna out loud in my apartment. Oh, absolutely not. And muted it <laughs> and just watched in silence until it was over. And I, I like unmuted it once and I heard like the LOG or whatever, you know, whatever his thing was. L to the OG. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, absolutely not again. And yeah, so I just couldn't do it. I will probably force myself to do it at some point, but it was just, the minute it started, I was like, this is absolutely, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's such a clever thing because all of these kids are fucking buffoons who think that they're these <laughs> little like masters of the universe, you know, because they've been told that yeah. or given the money to think that. And of course this like insanely white boy, you know, in a fucking party in Scotland for his dad who he's obsessed with. Is this going to sort of do this pathetic rap? Like, ugh. Um, but you know, I think for what little I heard, I mean, I think Jeremy Strong, he's got, you know, he, he, he's got some talent, I guess, in that regard. <laughs> I suppose. It wasn't like good, but I think the reason that Kendall's not at the bottom of the list this week is like, it somehow lands better than it has any right to. The crowd gets, um, gets with party. it eventually. Yeah. Uh, Danny Houston throwing his head back and saying, Oh gee, like with the crowd is, is one of the finest moments of all of television history. Um, well, that was just stock footage if, of Danny Houston at a party. They just spliced that in. <laughs> and then I don't, I don't know if you still had the mute on for Roman's reaction, which is something like, is this the end of the company or we're all going to be like sucked into a black hole of embarrassment? But I like that seems to be very much in line with your. That's reaction. exactly when I, uh, unmuted, I I unmuted it in time to hear that. And I was like, thank you, Roman. <laughs> Someone who gets it. Um, all right. So that is, I mean, that's all we need to say about yeah. Kendall and his boy squiggle, right? Okay. So um, right below Kendall is, is Roman Roy, who um, it's, this is an eventful trip for Roman. He proposes marriage of a kind to Jerry and he buys a Scottish football team, the wrong Scottish football team. Uh, what do you think of this, uh, this Roman Jerry situation this week? Huh. I mean, I don't, it's interesting. I, I couldn't tell how Jerry processed it, you know? Um, and I also couldn't tell how serious he was because he, you know, he sort of does his like Roman thing and talks around it and, or sort of makes jokes about it. And at some point he was like, you know, I kill you, you kill me or something like that. We kill each other. Um, but I think everything that Roman did and said in this episode, for me anyway, was colored by this really dark joke he made about being raped by a camp counselor. Yeah. That I was like, I yeah. don't think that's a joke. I don't think so either. And it just further paints, you know, helped continue this portrait that's being painted of the really traumatic childhood that this guy had. And yeah, Roman and, and, uh, out of all of them yeah. and how it's completely warped the way that he deals with. I thought it was interesting. I forget, sorry, I forget her name that the, the, the girlfriend that Caitlin Fitzgerald plays. Oh, I thought Tabitha? it was interesting that she was there. 
you know? Yeah. And then she's, so she's still in the picture. He hasn't just like kicked her to the curb because this thing with Jerry is actually becoming maybe something real. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I just kind of, it, I feel for him more than I do any of the other siblings, I think. Yeah, she's his beard and she's sort of like always been his beard and now like she's still his beard. He's just doing something else, you know, like as, right. as opposed to whatever nothing before. Now he's doing whatever it is he's doing with Jerry. Um Someone did send me a message on Instagram, which is not how I would suggest you get in contact with me. But uh, in this case, uh, anyway, uh, someone sent me a message on Instagram asking me what Tabitha does for a living. And I said, I, I think that maybe she just has money. Uh, cause she's friends with Naomi Pierce. So I think she just has money and doesn't have a job, but she might. Um, anyway, so let's, yeah, let's, let's zip through Roman and just say that, um, I, I think he, I liked his reaction to finding out that Jerry might have been a Rhea figure once for Logan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's not something that Jay Smith Cameron said to me when she talked to me about like how she started in the company, but it, you know, her idea was that her husband started and she started after him or something like that. But it might, you know, it might be true, but that's, but his reaction is what matters. Also shout out to Jerry. I mean, we don't have her on the list this week, but like, I really liked Jay Smith Cameron's line reading of like Sally Ann, the girl who got the harp. She yeah, was the- like, Oh, thing Sally is so Ann. funny. I just that's <laughs> like really a perfect funny. little detail that yeah. kind of gives you a whole picture of whatever that was. You know, yeah, exactly. Some some woman who let you know Logan be carried away with something sort of you know whimsical as whimsical as a harp. You know, uh, yeah, pretty ridiculous. Um, yeah, and and Roman's whole like this wasn't like a you know one of their sexual encounters. This is like a escalation almost of his proposed, you know, joint. And they're just to notice, you know, like he does whatever she says. She's like, go talk to Edward, this guy that he's trying to get money from. And he goes and he, he like is seemingly working on this guy, Edward, who, who will give them more money. Right. Um, but he does whatever Jerry tells him to do. And he often, when she's not there, will be like, well, Jerry says blah, blah. blah. So I just, I really like this uh little team and how they're working to try to survive. Um so that that is Roman and that brings us uh to the bottom of the pile. <laughs> um and Richard, I know that you are someone who has written plays, yeah. uh, been more involved in theater on a practical level than I have. Um so what do you make of first pancake Connor Roy, a theater producer <laughs> uh extraordinaire? Well, I you know I haven't done theater in a long time, but I I I think if memory serves me, if anyone is going to say at, after the first preview this is the worst it's ever going to be, it should be the playwright and not the producer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like yeah. I just I I even though Willa is well, everyone on the show is an opportunist, so I can't falter for that. But uh, so I sort of felt bad, you know, because it was just like clearly the play is awful. Uh, I love that it was at the Barrymore, so it's a Broadway show. Um, and, uh, just everything about it, the title, the sort of the, 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 the design of the marquee, it just, it felt like very bitingly real, um, yeah. and, and exactly like the kind of production that would get put up maybe with a little bit more, uh, tact, but like, and that everyone in the Broadway community or the theater community or people who pay attention would be like grumbling over drink over, you know, cheap margaritas of blockheads about that dumb play that the rich guy funded, you know, like it, it just, it felt very real. 
for his like former call girl, uh, which mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not shaming sex work. Like once again, everyone's striving. So Willa, Willa should go ahead and get hers. Um, the stuff with the sand mites, I gotta say, like Alan Ruck is just always great, but I think his line reading, uh, when Greg is coming to him about the sand and he's like, I know nothing about that. And you'll have to talk to the sand guy, just like <laughs> everyone else. All right. And bear no legal responsibility. Like great, great line reading. And the way and that also Greg, this just, sorry, yeah. the way that Greg says, I think that there's something maybe alive or i think something's maybe thriving in the sand thriving. <laughs> like, it's just like so hard it's like a horror movie i love it uh, he's like i had really good seats but yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Anyway. i had really good seats exactly <laughs> Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, so, so poor, poor Connor has got this, uh, you know, albatross across, around his neck, which is, uh, Willa's play, uh, which is ruining him, um, which is funny because I thought he had more money than that, but, uh, you know, he, he wants help from his dad. His dad's like, I'm sure you'll figure this out, but I do want to circle back to this, uh, insult that Shiv lobbed at him, which is the first pancake, right? And the idea that, like, the first pancake is always, like, in the pan is always, like, a little wonky or burnt or whatever, and it's like Connor is like the the trial balloon of Roy kids and he doesn't really count it's <laughs> yeah. defective and stuff like that so uh no, yeah, and once again, you learn yeah and the fact the fact of the matter is he knows it you know that's why yeah. he's running for president that's why <laughs> you know he he he's like the others he's just trying to prove himself but like he's incapable of it because he doesn't actually want to do the work of being a person worth being proud of you know um, yeah. I don't know. I think he, he's, I said it before, but I think he's my favorite piece of satire on the show. I think the way that that character is drawn, it just feels so startling, like what is actually out here in the real world that, um, uh, I think it's fascinating. And, and just to reiterate that we learned this thing about Connor's mom, which is that, you know, she went to maybe a mental institution. So that's yeah. just more, you know, more, more info, uh, similar to like learning about, um, Roman's, potentially dark uh, childhood experience. This is, you know, it's, it's a very traumatic thing to have happened to you. Um, so hopefully we'll learn more about that. And I like the way that this episode sort of drops these nuggets of things that um, we will presumably find out more about or just always allude to them. Who knows? Um, all right. So that brings us to our conversation with uh, Dame Harriet Walter. So here we go. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
I am beyond thrilled to welcome one of my favorite actresses of all time to the podcast, Dame Harriet Walter. Thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to start by asking you how you became involved in this project in the first place. I don't know the secret of how one gets cast in anything. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I already, I'd worked with Brian Cox. I knew him from way back. He was actually my, one of my teachers at drama school, believe it or not. But I don't suppose he had much to do with it except to say she's not terrible. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's one of the mysteries, but it's a lovely mystery. So your character is Lady Caroline, but we don't know a lot about her backstory. Do you know officially how she came to her title? Uh, or is this something that you've had to make up for yourself in your process? You kind of have to make up your own backstory and then be flexible enough if it, sh- if it turns up later on that it's something completely different. <laughs> right. But um, I, for safety's sake, have mentioned to Jesse what some of the things I thought was going on, but obviously I only thought I'd be in the wedding episode in season one. I didn't know I'd suddenly be asked to do a little scene in season two. So um, it suddenly became a bit more like I wanted to know much more about this person. Her title would come, actually, if she's Lady Caroline, probably would come from the fact that her father was an aristocrat. Mm -hmm. So she was raised in the world of country English houses and horses and dogs, that kind of setup. <laughs> right. Um, but she's an only child, this is my story. Uh-huh. So she didn't inherit she didn't inherit whatever her father had and it all went to a distant cousin. Um, so she's a little bit resentful about that. But she was also kind of disregarded in her childhood. It didn't really matter what she did according to that system, as long as she married somebody good and rich. Um And so she felt a little bit dismissed all her life and thought, well, nobody's going to notice if I turn into a badass and do drugs and drink and, you know, um, get into trouble. Nobody's going to really notice. So I I sort of picture her as being one of those people who was a bit of a tear away and got into the social columns in disgrace from sort of spending bad nights out, you know. Um, And then I at one point, I thought maybe she'd been married before to somebody really straight and rich and boring and English, and then had met Logan on a trip to New York or something and found him much more dazzling and exciting and can-do and loved his bullishness. And, you know, because compared to the guys she'd grown up with, he was, you know, he was pretty pretty exciting. And I imagine, you know, the Logan charm would have been turned on like, you know, we know it can be. And um, she was pretty young. And I think, you know, she and he already had a wife um, because Connor has a different mother. We don't know whether she died or whether he left her for me or what. That's all to be invented. Um, and then, you know, what I like, I, I said to myself, look, she stuck around. She had three children with him. You know, it wasn't like a fly-by-night thing. Um you know, and whatever the age gap is between all the sibs, um, she was around to see them into teens, I would think, um, and was probably very neglectful, handed them over to nannies. You've only got to watch Logan's behavior to know what it would be like to be married to him. Right, right. You know, so therefore, I have a certain amount of apologia for her, which... um, the viewer on seeing her only very fleetingly probably doesn't 
<laughs> but um, I imagine it was a bit like the Getty situation, if you know about that, where if if a marriage broke up, he he actually refused for his daughter in order to see the children, um, and or certainly the son had to keep them in custody. You know, had the custody because they had to be grown up, reared as Gettys in the Getty sphere, and so. You know, if she gave her children and Logan up, it must have been pretty bad. <laughs> you know, however much of a distant, unemotional mother she was, um, she probably didn't know how to mother if she'd not been very well nurtured as a child herself. But I don't think any mother of any kind would be um, happy about um, leaving that situation. But I think it must have been intolerable. And... Um, so I think there's a certain sadness, but the way she deals with that is to be very glib and flippant and hard. And you can't get me because I'm going to get you first. Right. Because your character has this title and Logan has such a chip on his shoulder about class. Do you think part of the allure for him in the first place was the status that would be conferred to him by marrying um, a lady? Yes, I do think that. I think that's probably what got him going at first. Um, and she wasn't the ordinary run-of-the-mill kind of English aristocrat because she was a bit naughty and she was a bit devilish, you know, or she might have played that up. I don't know. But she, she certainly knows how to play games. But uh, so she's not, you know, I don't think you could ever enter the Logan family and not be already very well equipped at playing games. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um because there are so many uh, incredible playwrights on the writing staff of Succession, and given the way that they frame each episode around a location, I started to think of each episode of the series as like a little one-act play. Yeah. Uh, given given your experience, your your long history in the theater, uh, you know what strikes you as theatrical about your work on this particular show? You know, there's nothing more theatrical than power games. I mean, basically, all Shakespeare's plays are about that. Really. <laughs> right. You know, so. So um, kind of who's going to who's who's on top and who's not at any given point in every in every minute, in every half eyebrow raise, you know, um, that's what keeps us on our toes somehow. Um, and I think the quality of the writing invites a very high quality of acting, which is, um, it, you know, theatrical theater is much more dependent on on writers and actors than, than anything else. Whereas you can get away with a good car chase on screen and keep people <laughs> gripped, you know? Right. Um, so it's re re you really rely on, you know, actors can't work with bad material. I mean, they can make it okay, but you know, you, you've got to have really stunning good material to, to shine and, and get the, these great performances out of everybody. Um, I will say it's, daunting to walk into a show that you've already watched <laughs> and say and say this guy Jeremy Strong and this guy Kieran McLaughlin this and Sarah Smith they're my kids <laughs> you know? that that is that's quite daunting because <laughs> they're so brilliant all of them of course when I got on the set it was let's do the work and uh, everyone was very friendly and accepting I know Succession employs a blend of improvisation and, uh, you know, really whip smart, uh, script, uh, di witty dialogue. How does the Succession approach to TV making work with your particular approach to acting and how does it challenge the way that you usually tackle a role? 
Well, okay, that's a good question. I mean, in the first, I had more to do in season one. I was I was around a lot more. I mean, I was there for two or three weeks, um, and I met everyone in the show because it was a wedding party. So I kind of got to know the way everyone worked, and I and I yeah, and I got very quite well oiled into the into the machine um, during that period. And I would say it had a, a for me a very perfect mix of when in doubt the writer's right. I sort of that's one of my little mottos, you know. <laughs> um I try to, you know, if, if it I will try what the writer wrote first and if it doesn't work, I will suggest something different. And writers are very varied as to how much they accept your invasion of the space. But um Jesse and team were great. There was nothing that wasn't right. They always did one take at least, which was a free-for-all where you could improvise. And um, of course, through improvisation, you do have this great, you kind of, you blend with the character because, you know, with Shakespeare, you've got to speak the language of the time. With a modern thing, you think, well, hey, this could be me. Why am I saying this instead of this? Um, so you, you, um, you you are in you know, this is an ideal situation where we were free to to um throw stuff in some of my improvs got into the final cut which is nice some of them just warmed me up to play the scene a bit more easily um Kieran does a lot of improvising and makes you know <laughs> it keeps but you know what that says is when you're in a long stint it's it's really I mean, you're hanging around all day like you do on a film set it's very good to have someone with that kind of comic energy keeping you going um and uh, in the second, my second visit this year, earlier this year to do season two, episode seven, um, I I was at the disadvantage that I had no idea what happened in one to six. So I didn't know the story from from when I was last in it to um, to appearing, and in a kind of slightly sad way, it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, all she needed to know was that her her vote was being bought. You know, and um, she knew how to play that game. There's a burning question of, you know, she gives up um, thirty million dollars, uh, thirty million pounds or dollars, I'm not sure which, um, in order to have her kids kids at Christmas. She's either doing it merely to tell Logan, I want the kids. B, she's saying sincerely, but in a kind of twisted way. I miss the kids. I want to, I want to see them. I was hurt many years ago by the fact that you went with your dad and see, which I think is probably the most potent. She is really only doing it to expose to her children, how little her dad cares yeah. for them. So that she's yeah. saying, look, here's the deal on the table. I'm prepared to drop 30, 30 million or whatever. I think there's a 50 million top and they offer 20, you know, so there's a 30 million you know, I'm throwing down the drain in order to be with you guys. Um, they're such cynics, they don't buy the first version. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, the second version. I would like to think there must be, I mean, the, the whole show is about human beings. I mean, they are outrageous and they behave in ways that we gawp at because they have the sort of resilience of, you know, that huge money. But they are still human. So I want to believe that Caroline would love to have more of her kids, but she's just incapable of giving them what they want. And she is um, too defensive to show her 
love because she might lose them again. I mean, there's a whole lot of complication we don't know about and isn't shown on the screen, which I've got in my head because I don't believe in a mother who doesn't have any care about her children. I'm very interested in episode seven specifically. There's this great business in both of your scenes uh, around food. There's the dinner scene with Roman and, and Shiv where we're serving, you know, meager uh, pigeon uh, or what have you. And then there's the later scene with Kendall where she's sort of snacking and grazing and not seeming to pay attention to him. And, and so what do you think is going on with, I don't know, this withholding of food from her children, her relationship with food? What is going on? with Caroline there? Well, I think, I think this has been a problem for her all her life, don't you? I think I think she was probably an anorexic teenager, that she has a, a whole, I would think, um, quite a few issues with food, with, with um, the whole idea of food as a generosity thing that she's withholding because she's scared of giving. Um, you know, it's chicken and egg, sorry to use a food metaphor, <laughs> but, you know, um, it, it's kind of, did was she rejected first or did she def- defend herself as a result or was she so defensive nobody came near her? I don't know, but whatever happened in her childhood or whatever, um, I think she was brought up by a nanny in a big old cold house. And I know people like that. I know a few people like that from my childhood. Um, and, you know, a few of them are anorexic. <laughs> they have a problem with food. Um, I can't go into that because that's, that's getting into quite dangerous territory. Um, you know, I don't want to judge anorexia because it's a very complicated issue. But in this case, I think she denies herself stuff. And then in the middle of the night, she says, okay, I can make, I can have a little snack. You know, um, because um, I am hungry, but a, a little snack won't harm me and I'll be in bed soon and I won't be tempted to eat anymore or something. But the idea of giving food as a sort of big generous gesture, um, she knows that's what she's supposed to do. So she goes through the motions <laughs> and says, look, I got, I got you yeah. three shriveled pigeons, you know, <laughs> aren't I bountiful? Aren't I being mum? Um, but at the same time, she sort of sends herself up. I mean, it's very interesting writing because it's so unstraightforward. And yet I have to appear in these little tiny bursts and hope that people will at least go, I wonder what's going on there, rather than, oh, I know that type. You know, because <laughs> I don't think she is uh, a straightforward, you know, we can dismiss her, we know exactly how to read her kind of character because why would she be when all the, all the writers have done such a great job on even the smallest parts everywhere else. So although I haven't discussed any of those depths, particularly with Jessie, I, I, I talked about perhaps her having had an alcoholic phase when she was young and alcoholic times when she was really unhappy in the marriage and that somehow that caused her to, you know, she went off the rails, she might have had an affair. Um, Logan kicked her out. You can't have the kids. You're a bad example. I mean, if any of that happened, which I'm inventing did, um, that would explain an extremely unhappy interior, um, masquerading in some kind of brittle brilliance, you know. 
I know you said you hadn't, uh, you, you weren't aware of what had happened in episodes one through six, but I know you were planning to catch up before you had a chat with me. Did you have a chance? To- I have now watched. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. You're all caught up. And, um, and it gets, and the plot thickens, and it's just marvelous. It's marvelous. I think if anything, it's even better this year. I don't know. No, I agree with you. And, and one thing I want to specifically talk to you about was this Roman and Jerry, uh, relationship, romance, whatever you want to call it, that's happening this season. Um, I, I note in this episode, episode seven, that we were talking about, when Kieran's character, Roman, approaches you, he does this sort of yeah. like deferential sort of, oh, mommy sort of thing. And so I was wondering, you know, what are your thoughts around Roman and his mommy issues and how that's translating into this whole uh, Jerry dynamic? Well, yes, because when he when I first met him in episode nine of season one, it was the same slightly kind of. I'm your little boy, mom. Hi. You know, um, kind of coochie coochie kind of thing, which looks like, you know, that must be a games playing thing that they've done. You know, he's the baby and he will have felt the loss of a mummy more than in, in a, in a different way from the others. And he would have been barely teenage. You know, he might've been eight or nine when I, when I left, you know what I mean? So, I think there's a kind of, in that setup, in that world, nobody's being sincere until they feel safe and they never feel safe. So I think that on both sides, there's a kind of games playing. I'm your mummy, but, it, you know, because she says, oh, Rowie, she calls him Rowie and things like that, you know, like, and that's for the first half second. And then she pulls away. But I think, you know, there is a sort of I haven't got a mummy fixation, I'm sure. I don't think Marsha's a great cozy mummy, no. is she? <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, it's weird that, you know, I, I start, you know, when I look at it, I think, well, you know, what made her stick around long enough to have three kids and see them into, you know, beyond teenage or just into late teenage, the oldest and the youngest, maybe nine or ten, you know. She, something must have been going on to keep her there. And I also think, you know, she lived in America. She lived in New York because they've all got totally American accents and obviously grew up in America. Um, so she she was the one who went over there to be with them. And now she's gone back with her tail between her legs to her old life. Because the show's creator, Jesse Armstrong, is British, and because all of your uh, scenes thus far on the show have been annexed to the UK, um, do you think of this as an American show? And if you do, uh, does it help that you have an American husband? Does he help you uh, understand the inner workings of the American, (laughs) I don't know, state of mind? (laughs) It's a good question. When I first... I got sent the pilot of season one and I watched it and I thought, I'm allowed to say the word. I thought, shit, why, why can't British writers do this kind of stuff? And then I found <laughs> out they were British and I thought, so what is it? I thought it's the system. It's the writing system on American TV. You have a, a, a room, you have a writing room, you have a showrunner. We're picking that up now. We're doing many more things that way now, but, um, there's something to do with the um, the power that a writer has in a show compared to the power they have in the UK um, that makes for 
that certainly attracts great writers, you know, because it's a nicer system to work in. But, you know, when you've got a room full of people writing to the same end, um, taking care of different aspects of the story, that makes a big difference to the outcome outcome and it's immediately noticeable by an actor because the dialogue is just fancier, cleverer, you know, chewier, meatier, um, and above all, less cliched. Um, you know, so that's what drew me into it. I just said, whatever, you know, my part hadn't even been written. I said, yes, of course, <laughs> I'll do it. Um, so, so I did think of it as an American style job. But it has obviously this British wing to it, which which suits me very well. Um, I'd love if if you know I could tangentially be part of it in the future if it goes on, because now I'm they've bought me into Christmas. True, true. They'll say, "Ah, oh, mum, mum disappeared. She didn't show up. She went skiing." You know, so <laughs> and I'm written out. Um, <laughs> but I would also, because my husband has an apartment in New York, I'd love it if she flew over to New York to stir things up sometimes. So, you know, um, I have to sit and wait for my fate. So for this next part, let me uh, get all, make sure I get all my greats uh, right. Your great, great, great <laughs> grandfather uh, founded the London Times. And even though your family is no longer involved in the day-to-day uh, workings of the paper, you come from a media mm-hmm. dynasty. Does that yeah. help you, like, give you insight into this family that you're a part of here? Yes, I never even thought of that. <laughs> yes, I guess I do. Yes, but you know, that's funny because um, that might have fed into something here because although the the sort of 20th century and 21st century media moguls are very different from my family who were extremely 19th century, um, um, and they were very fierce, they were much more the, um, the, what are they called, the peer side than type of uh, people because they had much more sort of public servant attitudes. Um, public spirit attitude and and um, you know it was a different role the papers played in those days but there was very definitely a thing whereby um, there was almost this dynastic thing where they were called John Walter the first John Walter the second John Walter the third John Walter the... my grandmother was John Walter the fifth my <laughs> no, uncle was John no Walter the sixth my first cousin was John Walter the seventh it's crazy and as if we had a kingdom but we don't and then my father was the second son, and that's kind of nowhere man in, in UK class stuff. You know, it's only the first son that gets anything. And I was the second daughter of the second son, so I just didn't count. You know, so it maybe that's where I was fed this idea of, you know, how little a woman in the old class system in Britain really mattered unless they married somebody up, up the social scale, you know that's what you were for. <laughs> um, so, but the, in in any other way, there's not really there wasn't really that. Um, it followed a uh, there wasn't a power struggle for who would inherit. It was you know my dad would have liked to work for the Times, but it just was never on the cards because you're the second son. Bye. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's a it's it, there wouldn't have been that kind of jostling for power thing that they have that keeps this whole show so alive. Right. And, you know, given what you just said about the uh, British class system of old, uh, what do you think 
Caroline makes of Siobhan's ability to, I don't know, maybe her increased mobility, her way, her ability to climb through the ranks uh, under her own steam, rather than maybe some of the opportunities that were afforded to Caroline. Is it, is it resentment? Is it admiration? How does she feel about that? She probably is a bit frightened by Siobhan because she's quite like her dad and, you know, is very, very smart about stuff that maybe Caroline isn't. I mean, I don't know. Um, I, I don't. I don't think she resents. I think she's quite competitive for her affection um, because she admires her. I think it's re- very possible for um, uh, a mother to look up to her daughter if she's not very like her. Because I don't think they are very alike. I think. I think if anything, funnily enough, I think the one who's most like Ca- Caroline has flowed a bit into Kendall. In the, I think she has more depth than we've seen, a bit more inside torture than we've seen, um, and I think she's also flowed into uh, into um, Roman because she's got that kind of that glib, ha 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 ha, and every line is a joke kind of defense mechanism. So I think those are the people she's influenced or influenced by most. I think Shiv is very different from her. Um, and very much her own thing, and, and I think she's quite scared of her, really. Um, and, of course, Shiv probably wants big affection, too, but just really doesn't beg for it, um, in the same way that Caroline probably never begged for it from her parents. It's it's a terrible uh, sort of poison chalice, all that kind of, you know, wealth and power, if you're born into it, I, I imagine, she says, from the very... Um, downwardly mobile Walter family. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. So you are a a Shakespearean actor of great renown. So I would be remiss if I didn't uh, pick your brain a bit about the Shakespearean illusions in succession. Obviously the, the play that we think of first when we think of succession is Lear. Yeah. Logan Roy is a very Lear like figure. Um, but I was wondering if you had some broader Shakespearean, uh, ideas about succession. And is there any analog, Shakespearean analog for, for your character, for Caroline? Not so much. Um, I mean, what we all lament is that there, there, there's never a Mrs. Lear or Queen Lear. Um, a lot of, um, I mean, if you look at uh, so many of the plays, um, the female character is motherless. You know, I mean, we have a little word from Lady Capulet. We have, um, you know, I mean, of course there are instances, but most of them, my dead mother. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, so they don't get advice from their mother, but they get a lot of um, controlling advice from their from a dead father beyond the grave sometimes. I mean, Portia's dead father sets up that there are three caskets her suitor has to choose from, otherwise she doesn't get free from her life. You know, um, um, Viola's dead father is mentioned in, in Twelfth Night um, as being someone who, who quite approved of the Duke of Orsino. So you think, oh, well, she thinks maybe I can... Maybe I should pursue him. Daddy liked him, you know. What about Hamlet's mother, Gertrude, his bad mom, Gertrude? Is there anything uh, worth exploring there? That could be a good one. Yes. Sorry, I missed her. Now, that's a part. No, that's a part that I've never wanted to play because she doesn't get to explain herself. So that does have a parallel in some ways with this, in that, you know, you're bursting with what, you think went on, but you don't get a speech about it. 
you know. So I think that 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 is relatable in a way. Um, who knows what it was like being married to the, to the old Hamlet? You know, I saw one really, you know, I saw a really good production which explained Gertrude for the first time for me, which was, you know, the old the ghost was sort of rather horrible and Claudius was really nice. And you thought, well, of course she had to marry the king. That was the right thing to do, you know, for social position, but he wasn't very nice. And actually she fell in love with his brother and, you know, conspired to kill him, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I thought, hey, that makes sense. That makes total sense. I never understood it because we always see it through Hamlet's eyes. And he says, how could you be this wonderful person for that shitty person? And that's always, that's Hamlet's POV. And, you know, we've all bought into it. And in fact, it might have been the other way around. So I loved seeing that production because I thought, oh, God, now I could play Gertrude. I could play that one. But so that's perhaps much more in the Caroline territory where you sort of you, you look at the man and you understand what it would be like to be married to him. Can you imagine being married to Logan? I mean, absolute yikes. Scary beyond anything and loveless and frightening. And, you know, you would have to be cutthroat in order to survive, you know, his, his aiming knives at your throat, you know. Okay, for for my last question, I'm going to drag us down from the lofty highbrow, tumble us down to the lowbrow, uh, and follow up on an answer I saw you give uh, The Guardian in an interview a ways back. You said that one of the things you like to do, or your guilty pleasure, I suppose, is watching YouTube videos. And so I'm just curious what, what you, uh, Dame Harriet Walter, watch on YouTube. <laughs> oh, and this interviews with celebs and, um, um, you know... Um, that leads to some documentary about, you know, some royal family theory, which is tosh, uh, or some conspiracy theory, which is tosh, or, um, <laughs> I mean, it's very nice to watch idiocy because, you know, it's sort of not challenging to the brain. Well, thank you again so much for your time. I cannot thank you. wait for the Succession Christmas special starring you. <laughs> The one where I fled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first. Season three, Succession, Curse of Special, the one where Lady Caroline sleds, starring Dame Harriet Walter. We cannot wait. All right, that does it for Still Watching Succession this week. Richard, until all the Roy, crazy Roys are back next time, uh, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me, you know, s- seven days a week, or I guess six, because we have Mondays off. Anyway, I'm stage managing Sands, so I'm doing a little, <laughs> little, little side gig at the Barrymore Theater. Uh, and uh, but from this, from the booth, I'll be tweeting at Rylas and writing for VF.com. Joanna, where will you be? Um, I'll be busily trying to write some lyrics that could possibly compare to. Run your mouth at the king, just pucker up, bitch, and kiss the ring. Um, from <laughs> did I, oh, I, I missed that, I guess. Stylings. Yikes. <laughs> of Logan Roy. Uh, otherwise, you can find me on VF.com. You can find both of us on the podcast, Little Gold Men. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This, and we will see you next time. And if you are watching this video, 
either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.